Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey guys, you ever wonder what Phil and I wear while we podcast? You can find out if you join our Patreon. We'll also be talking about the films of 1989, but that's definitely less important than seeing our Zoom backgrounds, our headphone choices, and our sweatshirts. It's true. It's true. You'll get to see all the various pieces of artwork that I have framed on my office wall, and you can see Kenny's garden, sort of. So that's something. That's exciting. It's a hanging garden. It's a hanging garden. Uh, But perhaps more important than anything, uh, we are doing this Patreon to cover the best films of 1989. Uh, Batman, When Harry Met Sally, Indiana Jones, The Last Crusade, Ghostbusters 2 with amazing guests like Tom Meissen, Liz Hanna, Joanna Robinson, Brian Cogman, Chuck Hayward. You can sign up at patreon.com backslash podcast like it's 1989. And for $5, you'll get access to all the audio of these fantastic episodes. For a few bucks more, you'll get video as well of our 99 and 89 episodes. And perhaps, most importantly, you'll be supporting us uh, so we can just keep making podcast content for you guys. Hello and welcome to Podcast Like It's 1999, the podcast where we talk about the films of 1999 from a support group here in 2022. I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Nybart. And I'm Phyllis Gove. And with us today is Karen Kusava. That's pretty fucking cool. Um, <laughs> you know her. She's uh, the best director we have working. Um, she's a girl fight and Amplux and uh, Destroyer and Invitation. I'm going to get them all. Yeah. Jennifer's Body. Uh, just, just did the pilot of the hottest show on TV, Yellow Jackets, and uh, is our new best friend. Thank you for coming on, Karen. <laughs> 
Hi, nice to see you guys. This is fun. Yep. So I, I mean, listen, Kenny and I, we've been doing this for four years now. Um, and this is a movie that we've, um, quite frankly, been sort of, I don't want to say sitting on, but we've been sort of, you know, pushing it down, trying to figure out mm-hmm. how to come at this thing. And, and, uh, and when it became clear that maybe there was a chance you would come on, we were just like, well, this is, I mean, this is the person to talk about this movie with. Um, but I, I want to sort of take us back a little bit to 1999 um, and sort of, you know, what was that year like for you? I mean, obviously it was a very big year for movies. Did you see this film in 99? Did it have an impact on you? I did. It, it's funny that you ask sort of what was happening for me because I was actually, I shot Girl Fight and I was, I was editing it through the fall and winter. And so of 1999 and then, took it, took Girl Fight to Sundance in January of 2000. So one of the things we would do, my editor and I would be work these crazy long hours at this Midtown storied post house called Sound One that now is no longer, and then just have to find a movie break. And so I have such vivid memories of seeing Fight Club, Bowfinger, um, like, uh, you know, and like laughing till I was crying on Bowfinger, like it's a masterpiece because I was just so like, I was so vulnerable making the first movie and so tired and um, would sleep some nights in that cutting room. So I think I was going to movies in this slightly um, delirious state. Yeah. And it's interesting because my initial reaction to Fight Club was that I was just kind of mad at it. Like I, I didn't love the movie when I first saw it. Um, I knew that the reason I was going in, in absolutely bald, somewhat pathetic terms was that I just wanted to see Brad Pitt, like at that stage of his (laughs) physique and career, to be perfectly honest. Like there was something just sort of like awe-inspiring about it, which I think the retrospect- movie thought so too. Well, yeah. yes. Well, and yeah. that's the point. And it's so fascinating yeah. to watch the movie now as, you know, a straight up grown-up and really realize that that was what was happening was that you really are looking at the fetishization of the male form from both a male perspective and then what sort of in some, I think, ancillary way becomes the female perspective, you know, because we're, we're ogling him in watching Mm -hmm. that movie. Um, But I have such vivid memories of watching it. And I remember, I think it was with my editor, Plummy Tucker and the star of Girl Fight, Michelle Rodriguez. And she mentioned all of the quick cuts, you know, the like 10 frame or, 20 frame cuts to Tyler at the beginning of the movie. And she said, Mm -hmm. Oh, that's so cool how that happens. And I was like, what are you talking about? And I did not see it. I don't remember seeing it the first time either. My old eyes, but she was sort of like, I think just actually already schooled in a visual language where you would see 20 frames of Tyler Durden, but I, I didn't. And so it was funny to see it again and be like thinking about well, I, you know, it's interesting because, you know, Kenny and I have obviously watched a lot of films from 99. And one of the sort of biggest things we've kind of taken away from it is toxic masculinity in a lot of ways and how, you know, prevalent that was in the 90s. And this movie is, I mean, I watched it again. I've seen it many times, but it's such a fascinating deconstruction of masculinity, but then also to sort of see how it's been co-opted by a group that does not get 
what this movie is really talking about. It's just really, it, it is, it's a fascinating film and it's an easy film to misinterpret. And I wonder, you know, I, I don't know about you, Kenny, because we obviously both saw this in 99. I certainly, as smart as I thought I was in film school in 1999, I definitely didn't glean a lot of the stuff that was going on in this film. And I wonder whether or not that's part of why it's aged well and poorly at the same time. I so I saw it in '99. Uh, I was, you know, I I I, I think I've said this before. I felt like I was baptized by Fisher by Fincher to some extent. Sure, sure. sure. Right. So um, he had made three films at that point, and I thought two of them were like, you know, my favorite movies ever. And I was so excited for this, and I loved Edward Norton. I loved Brad Pitt, and it felt right to me. And there was uh, Karen. I had a similar feeling that you did, which was. Um, I almost short circuited, right? I remember like not really understanding what I was feeling, but I certainly wasn't feeling the same feeling I felt when I watched Seven or when I watched The Game, right? It was it was more the the journey I thought I was going on is not the journey I am being taken on, and I am kind of uncomfortable with what's happening in this film. Um, and I, yeah, I, I guess I certainly didn't know what to expect, but I was hoping for a really great twist ending. And uh, <laughs> I think that's kind of where, where I you came down. It. You, you, yeah. you, you, but I remember it being a little underwhelming even um, huh. in the moment, but it's not about the twist ending, obviously, you know, we, we moved past it, but I think that uh, I, I, I do, I remember not really loving it and then not loving it for years and years and years and years and years, right? Mm. For, you know, 10 years onwards always felt like this. I always kind of felt like this movie is not. And I think Phil, you had a similar feeling to this too, that this movie is not doing what people seem to think it's doing. And I couldn't put my finger on it. Right. I couldn't exactly understand why the fight club posters and the Tyler Durden, uh, you know, love and affect, uh, idolizing Mm -hmm. sat wrong with me. Um, and I still, to be honest with you, and I feel I was getting at this with, when I was yeah. texting with you about it, I'm not convinced that the movie is 100% where the movie thing want, where, where audiences today want to believe the movie is. I yeah. still feel like the Project Mayhem stuff is odd, a little misplaced, and leaves me thinking, there's a lot more being condemned here than we are comfortable with uh, grappling with. It's very easy to say, to say toxic masculinity is bad and it's a plague on our culture. I think we got that. It's what, what's happening with Project Mayhem that I'm always grappling with with this movie. Like, what does that mean? And where does where do we come down on that part? So that's that's kind of my... Well, it's interesting you, you say that, Kenny, because I... I mean, I did a, I, I did some research just trying to kind of dive into some of the themes and just stuff that maybe I didn't glean, and and really just trying to make sure that that we kind of hit on all the various things that the movie is trying to do. And it's, I would argue, trying to do perhaps too much. I think we're so all, dense. You yeah. know what I mean? Like it's, I, I I think that it's it's a it's a noble effort in a lot of ways, but I think that you hit it on the nose. The Project Mayhem stuff still bumps me. That the tone of it feels a little 
fratty in a way that I'm not sure is entirely intentional. Um, and, and there's this sort of, there's this whole culture jamming thing. I don't know if you read about this, Kenny, but it's this whole like idea of that this movie is sort of using this kind of consumerism, uh, materialism, and then trying to transform it through their pranks, um, which I just don't know is entirely successful. Karin, what, what did you think about the sort of the, that, that element of it, the Project well, see, Mayhem stuff? I mean, <clears throat> I think it's absolutely fascinating that you use the word fratty because I think that's exactly what it was in spirit and in tone. And even the filmmakers are embracing to some degree this idea sure. of chaos agents, of anarchy, of mischief, of, of being shit disturbers. And, and I think... Right. What's fascinating about the movie is that the movie can't decide what it feels about Project Mayhem. It, right. it kind of claims to, by, by the end, by seeing Ed Norton's character renounce it and say, we've got to undo this and this is wrong. But we've just sat with it for two and a half hours and watched Brad Pitt be the vessel of that message. And he's a very appealing vessel. No matter how odious Tyler Durden is, he's a big honking movie star, perhaps the biggest movie star of our generation. And I kind of feel like this is an example of a, you know, a a sort of a cake and eating it too kind of movie where it wants to critique something, but it might be guilty of the very thing it is critiquing. That being said, seeing this movie, because I recently rewatched Social Network, seeing this movie alongside Social Network in which it is quite literally fratty it is quite literally about project mayhem in a fraternity at harvard becoming the biggest oh yeah social engineering experiment of our time and potentially the death of culture i i kind of think fincher was on to something that he couldn't quite even see how big these currents of male tribalism, the will to not just destroy others, the will to destroy yourself. I mean, oh, we're seeing that it, right now. it's such an absolute, um, it's sort of like a window into a horrible future that, that I, I didn't quite anticipate feeling watching it again now. And, and that was very interesting actually to me. Like there was some, this is why the movie is controversial, complicated, flawed, and, in some ways, you could argue, quote, a dangerous text. Sure. But oftentimes, the dangerous texts are still worth unpacking and, and talking about in complex terms and nuanced terms, because that's how we get further as a culture. We can't just reject what Fight Club was doing or where it, where it failed to do something, because there's too much that's interesting about it, in my opinion. I- I think that was all incredibly well said, and I agree with every point of that you made. I, I want to just break that down, you know, from my 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 POV as a seventeen year old who was film obsessed growing up in a you know upper class community where uh, a lot of my friends would not find any nuance in this movie, and then a lot of my friends who were uh, more kind of, you know, film obsessed people or more literary people uh, were so turned on by this preview. 
and by the by the trailer for this movie. And the thing I remember talking to my friend who went on to be a filmmaker and who, you know, I think he would take this characterization as a compliment was a budding communist. Um, he was so, ex- so excited by the the snippet from Ed Norton's apartment where they showed the price of everything in his apartment. And he the way he felt was like, essentially, finally, someone sang. Right. Finally, someone, in a, you know, in a big way is saying what I've been feeling every day I come to school and I see people pull up in their expensive cars and I see people showing their labels out and all those things like you all you are going to be taken down. And the and it's not so much that Fight Club, I think Fight Club fails at this. I think it's an incredibly interesting, fascinating, rich film to watch in 2021. Uh, but what Fight Club does, and I think about my friend, is he walks my friend up to the logical conclusion of you, a young, white, virile male, wanting to take down the system and what that looks like, probably. And it probably looks like, you know, destruction and terrorism and sure. extreme violence and all these things. And the movie, I think, uh, like you said, Karen, wasn't ready to embrace that idea. Uh, and I don't know if anybody should embrace that idea. That's a, but, but, but. Or even understand that that's the idea that they're ultimately promoting, which I don't know, actually, if that's the case of the movie. I would also add to what you're saying, which is that Fight Club is predicting a certain kind of Bernie bro who was all in for Bernie Sanders and then refused to vote for Hillary because who's going to vote for that bitch? Like, that attitude, that misogyny combined with some sense of socioeconomic political wokeness that ultimately is just misogyny in another cloak. Mm-hmm. That is what I think Fight Club is actually attempting to unpack with the near total absence of women within its story, with the exception, obviously, of Helen Bonham Carter's character, sure. but still... <laughs> That is a problem for the movie. It is a problem the movie cannot get past because it is such an insular world. It becomes unpleasant and pathetic to watch in some ways. I, sure. For me as a woman, for me as sure. a woman. No, I mean, that's such a great point because the thing that's always kind of fascinated me about 2016, 2015, 2016 was how, how smoothly so many Bernie bros moved to becoming Trump voters. It's, it's a mind blower. It's be, it, you're hitting on it. It's because yeah. we, we had David McMillan on last week for our Patreon talking about driving Miss Daisy 89 because we do 89 moves on a Patreon. And he made the point of the most important thing for uh, white people, ethnic white people to be accepted among, you know, the elites is to hate the same people. Right. So as long as, you know, Jessica Tandy's character, as long as she's, you know, a Jew who still, you know, can kind of lord herself over a black person, she will be accepted into white culture in a way a black person never could be. It's the same with men and women. That's what the, that's what this this movie is saying in a lot of ways that it's not about the ideology. It's just about the boys club, you know. 
Yeah, Absolutely. no, for sure. For sure. It's, I think that, you know, Fincher had a quote um, where he says, I love this idea that you can have fascism without offering any direction or solution. Mm-hmm. Isn't the point of fascism to say, this is the way we should be going, but this movie couldn't be further from offering any kind of solution, which it's sort of like he's lighting a fuse, right? And then just kind of being like, I mean, take away from it what you want to take away from it, which I don't necessarily have a problem with the fact that you have to draw your own conclusions. But to your point, Karen, it's dangerous subject matter, right? So you're you're playing with fire and you're putting it in the hands of people that might not very well understand, how, you know, take away the wrong things from it, essentially. But but it, it, I wrestle exactly with what you're saying and what I'm hearing about Fincher's comments on this film because, like, I'm somebody who says that, you know, Seven is is a legit modern masterpiece. It will go into a time capsule. It'll be one of... You know, it'll survive as one of the greatest American films of the modern era. And yet its morality is quite a bit more black and white and somewhat simplistic and and kind of binary, right? Like, we know that Morgan Freeman is a heroic character, even if he claims otherwise. We, We know there is a difference between good and evil. I mean, I think it's really fascinating to think about John Doe turning himself in and then watching Ed Norton turn himself in, in, in fight club, which I think is perhaps something I didn't realize is also part of something that Fincher is grappling with is this idea of these guys who are like, please help me, (laughs) please, please help me. Um, And, and culture at large doesn't know how to do that. Um, We're just not equipped for it. Um, And so the next logical stage is somebody like Mark Zuckerberg, who's like, I don't need your help. I'm just here to, wreck your world um (laughs) and so you know what i mean like so so it's sort of like there is a graduation but but i wonder if fight club in being more complicated and uncomfortable i'm not going to go so far as to say it's a better film but i but it's certainly a more thorny a, a thornier one to culturally have a conversation around and, and, and have a con- conversation around what is it that we're embracing when we embrace Fight Club. There are, there are a lot of things to unpack there. Um, the, yeah, I mean, Seven is, you know, one of my favorite films ever. So, and, but, but part of it is because I know exactly what's happening there and I can just kind of, well, good and evil is very clear. I can get on the train and I can go for a ride. Very clear. I don't feel particularly challenged morally and ethically mm-hmm. and at my constitution. This movie uh, challenges me almost from the beginning. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there are at least three, maybe four movies within this movie that are very challenging. And I'm not even talking about thematically. I'm talking about the plot. I, there is a movie about a guy who goes to uh, who goes to support groups to feel better about himself, to feel something. Um, that's an interesting movie. And what I think this movie is not necessarily lacking, I think it's just, it's, it's, it's kind of leaving the question open is, what about the first, I don't know how old Ed Norton's supposed to be in this movie, let's say 35, 35 years of his life got him to that point. What is it about his particular, you know, privileged existence, works a white collar job, you know, travels all over the country, obviously for work, but like he, he, he got it made to some extent. 
What is it about that existence that makes him so unbelievably broken that he has to put himself among the most desperate, up, de- yeah, yeah, broken people to feel whole? And that's or what about it makes him split in two? I mean, what about that it? Too. Yes, literally, you know, or was he always split in two? And that's part of what it's exploring, too. You cannot live a, quote, normal life if 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 you're essentially so mentally ill, which is what the character is to a degree. Right. For sure. There, For sure. There's also just this this grappling with, like, what it means to be a modern man, this this idea of, like, what that act, I mean, Fincher talked a fair amount about The Graduate being a big touchstone for him when it comes to this movie, which I think is interesting um, and does speak to the sort of acerbic wit that exists in the film, like the comedic components of it. You know, The Graduate obviously was a very cutting satire in its time, still is, but I think that he really is trying to break down the idea of the everyman and what, what that means um, and I think that taps into sort of what you're talking about, Kenny, this idea of like, because there's this quote that Fincher has said, uh, the main character, the narrator is trying to do everything he was taught to do, trying to fit into a world by becoming the thing he isn't. He cannot find happiness. So he travels on a path to enlightenment in which he must, quote unquote, kill his parents, his God, his teacher. By the start of the film, he's killed off his parents, but Tyler Durden, kills his God by doing things that he's not supposed to do to complete the process of maturing. I think there's something there, but again, like, I'm not sure that it totally lands those notions, but I I appreciate that Fincher's trying to kind of corral these pretty big, heady, sort of unwieldy notions with his protagonist. I would also, though, say that from the lens of 2021 or 2022, I, I hope we can all say, and this is probably what I was initially responding to in the movie in 1999, was... It's a tremendously entitled place to be operating from to have to face, you know, quote, the meaning of your life and your identity, regardless of the fact that maybe you have a job that pays you well or all of these questions that the movie is satirizing, the crushing boredom of his white collar job. You know, for me as a woman who grapples with questions about the meaning of my life and what does it mean to have a legacy and what will it mean to not be given as many opportunities to create that legacy, all these questions. I'm just like, if you're bored at your job, quit and find something else you enjoy. Stop whining about it. Like that was my reaction to Ed Norton's character. I was just like, grow the fuck up. That was how I felt about that character. And in some way I still do, but I'm looking at it with a filmmaker's lens, a little bit more of a mature filmmaker's lens. And I can see how good and thoughtful the filmmaking is, but on a, on a pure emotional tonal level with that main character, I don't have a ton of sympathy for him or his problems. I will say. Sure. I think, you know, as you're, as you're kind of, as Phil, as you said that, and then Karen, as you continued it, the idea of this movie is about modern masculinity there's a pretty good case to be made that every film made by a white male filmmaker is about modern masculinity. Um, if you think about it, I mean, I'm just 
just just run it down from Judd Apatow to Eli Roth. Like they're all they they all are about like right. I wasn't I wasn't mature at the beginning of this movie, and hopefully I'll be mature by the end of this movie. And uh, how can I fit it in this world that no longer values a wonderful guy like me? So I think that uh, I I I that's not to condemn this film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's to say this film probably does it better than all the other movies because this film actually like really deals with what I think you were talking about, Karin, which is like your problems don't amount to a hill of beans in this world, right? Like you're, but what's really kind of cool about this film is it recognizes that, and this is the Trump thing to me, it recognizes that the, the small happiness deficit that a person like an Ed Norton has or a person like a Trump has, which is like the first six things on your Maslow hierarchy of needs are being met and you're just worried about, you know, like, I don't know, am I going to enjoy my meal tonight or whatever? And uh, those small little deficits can create these massive societal problems. That's what Social Network's about. His small little deficit was this girl doesn't like me that much. And look at what he's created and i know that's not necessarily the exact story of mark zuckerberg but like it's the story of mark zuckerberg right the story it's yeah. it's the story i mean i, yeah. I think it's like it, it's 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 just you know sort of revenge against a girl who wronged him writ large unleashed on not just harvard and that girl now the on the, the world. entire world on right. the and, world and the universe eventually i mean the metaverse right isn't that what we thought so it's <laughs> uh so it's it, it is really like that to me is the is the the fight club story which is you know it's not that edward norton or i mean it's not tyler durden however you want to characterize that guy is such an amazing guy it's that every fucking door is open for him when you look like that and the 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 amount of danger that you hold in your hands when every door to every every echelon of the society is open, essentially. And there, I mean, I think Trump kind of proved just how open they are, because I was always under the impression that people kept that, that he was kept out. Clearly not. Uh, is is so is so powerful and dangerous and, you know, I, I do think that, like, it's not that I think the film has to bear the responsibility of what it, what was born in a certain type of guy. But I do think it has to own that possibility when you make a movie like this, that in real sure. life, not only were there fight clubs, but flight, fight clubs were fetishized. Not only that, yeah, it's called the U.S. military. I mean, it's, it's, military. you know, it's like, also it's, called it's, you know MMA. Like, wasn't yeah, really oh, a sure. thing before this, and now that's you know that's an enormous part of this culture. Sure, and uh, you know, well, I mean, so, you you had things where now we have movies where fight clubs are just part of the joke. Well, you to, know, to they're, they're point, so part of the <laughs> fabric that they are just they're just a, a a nice little set piece for a comedy movie. So, well, I I I want to kind of piggyback on that, Karen, and, and ask you about violence because I feel like the violence in this film, the, the the physical fighting of this film, for all intents and purposes, within the context of it, is about men that don't know how to feel anything anymore. 
and that, that they become so dead inside that they, they need a physical expression of that and they need to feel pain to feel something. Um, you have violence in your films. And, and I do feel like, you know, it's, it's such an easy, reductive thing that critics will do, which is sort of, you know, dinging violence when it comes to the way that a film is, is appreciated or, or not. And I'm curious as to how you felt about the violence in this film, some of which was truncated for the UK because some of the violence, you know, especially the, the Jared Leto sequence in particular was truncated a little bit. Um, I'm, one, I'm curious as to what you thought of the violence. Did you feel like it was meaningful? Did you think that it was showy for the sake of being showy? And I, I just want to part B that. I'd yeah. love to hear how you use violence in your films as well. Yeah, obviously, yes. that, that yeah. too. Obviously. Mm. I mean, I do think actually the violence is meaningful. And I do think it's quite, um, beyond being graphic, I think it has a, a physical impact that you feel as unappealing and as um, perverse, which I think is part of the, the language of the movie. I don't believe that... I it's it's funny because I I go back and forth watching the film because there are times in which I think what Fincher is doing is common commenting on the defilement of the human body and then there are times particularly in the Brad Pitt sequence where he's being beat up by the gangster um then I kind of wonder if it's sort of lionizing or glorifying the defilement of a body if the body looks like that. Do you know what I mean? Like, so it's a little bit, um, I think it's a little murky at times in the movie. And, and to, I think the most complicated, and this goes to what both of you were talking about, the most complicated element of the violence in the movie is, is Ed Norton killing himself and seeing that the back of Tyler Durden's head has been blown out and yet continuing with the fantasy in my mind of Ed Norton being reunited with Marla and getting that beat of seeing sort of the catastrophe in front of him, but in this somewhat romantic um, context, you know, very romantic context of them holding hands and watching the catastrophe um, and having made the invitation, I am aware that there is a, a, a literal visual component that is echoing this, uh, you know, something that's happening in, in Fight Club. And so I, I want to, you know, give my props to the film for that. But <laughs> I also want to say that, you know, while I come away as a, I think, a more mature viewer feeling like the only way for that violence to end, sadly, was for Ed Norton's character to kill himself, I think that's a really sad conclusion to that story or that hypothesis. And I think it's sort of cheating because it's giving the audience this romantic ending. And I don't know that a lot of audiences are willing to really go further and say, no, that guy just blew the back of his head off. He's dead. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? And so that's what makes me uncomfortable is when, when violence has no lasting impact, when we know that this is the stuff that actually alters lives forever, ruins lives and ends lives. So it's an interesting question because I think a lot of the on-screen violence has consequence. And yet I ask a very fundamental question about the final act of violence, which might be the most important one. 
You know, it's it's interesting because the the film is it's so complicated. It's being pulled in so many different directions. I, I think about the fact that that David Fincher is one of our most stylish filmmakers, right? Like inevitably, his films look beautiful, even if this film is disgusting it is also slick and beautiful to look at right so you've got these moments where you know in particular there's that one shot where brad pitt stands up in the middle of a fight and he's just this adonis right like he's just a beautiful physical specimen which just feels like you know what i mean like that in and of itself is pulling you in two directions because you're like i'm supposed to be disgusted by what i'm looking at and yet at the same time it also feels like it's glorifying it too and being like look at this amazing specimen so you're just like what what are we really supposed to be taking it is very it's funny kenny and i've been texting a fair amount over the past couple of days about this film and and truthfully you know i thought i knew what this film was in a lot of ways when I sat down to watch it the other day. Um, but every time I watch it, I find myself kind of, you know, I don't want to say confused, but perplexed and taking something away from it that makes me that much more sort of unsure about it. I went to see it actually in the theater at the New Beverly with a friend of the pod and friend of yours, Ashley Lyle. Um, we went to see it and um, it was a very odd experience for me. Most of the theater was men. When did you I see fe- this? Sorry, when did I see you it? You saw this recently? Uh, no, no, probably it was before pre-pandemic. I saw it with okay. Ashley at at the New Beverly, and cool. it was mostly men in the theater laughing at moments that made me quite uncomfortable. And I, I you know, I kept thinking about how Ashley felt watching the film to a certain degree and what that was like. And we talked about it a bunch afterwards. And and it is a movie that unfortunately people can take the wrong things away from. And I don't know if I can hold it against the movie necessarily, no. but I, I just... You know. I think Ashley's proven that David Fincher has nothing on her when it comes to <laughs> violence. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure, sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes, no, yeah, sure. well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that's... that. Yeah, I, I, I think that's... These are some really, you know, kind of interesting points about what... I mean, they're all interesting points about what, what this, this movie is and what this movie was trying to uh, accomplish. But... I, you know, as a, as a, a you know, look, I, I, I say this somewhat uh, self-deprecatingly, but as a, a film bro for most of my life, someone who is trying to kind of, you know, some, someone who loved what he loved and then, you know, had to kind of reckon with, with what that meant and tried to grow up and all that stuff. There was a long period of my life where I would have said true romance was my favorite film. Um, and the reason I loved True Romance so much was because I thought it was the most romantic movie ever made. <laughs> sure, <laughs> because I thought because I thought I mean that and 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 you know there was a long period of time where I said it was True, true Romance and Moulin Rouge were my two favorite movies because those are the two most romantic movies possible. Those are that is everything that I think is romantic about movies and sure. about falling in love and all this stuff. And those are Romance kind of the, two, the capital R for sure. Two sides of my brain. Yeah. And uh Fight Club and your your you know your depiction of it as romantic and you know these kind of you know these 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 
glorious bathed in light images of, of beautiful Brad Pitt. And I would also, the very few notes I took were a lot of them were, God, it's just the filth is so gorgeous. Just the idea of like <laughs> the, the, there is something very romantic about living in a abandoned house like that. There's something very romantic yeah. about living off the grid. There's even something romantic about stealing the fucking uh, like fat for soap. And uh, there's not. <laughs> that clear though that's the that's what that that that's the uncomfortable thing that that i feel like i may have been put the position i've been put in is like oh you thought true romance was romantic because they were you know robbing people and yeah. you thought it was romantic because they were doing drug deals and and what's wrong with you and now Fight Club takes that all three steps further, which is like, there's nothing romantic about stealing people's liposucted fat and making soap out of it. There's nothing romantic about living in squalor with 30 other men who beat the shit out of each other in the basement. There's nothing romantic about this. Like, in (laughs) fact, like you have to recalibrate what you think romance is. Go on through a few more times, maybe. But I do think that, um, the thing that I took away most from the rewatch the other day of this was the kind of weird rom-com that exists underneath this film between the narrator and Marla, right? Like their relationship, which is obviously dysfunctional. I'm not in any way suggesting that, that it's a romance that I long for, but there is this very strange kind of meet cute component to them that then kind of progresses down a, bizarre rabbit hole watching the film thinking about it from marla's perspective is quite upsetting to think about what she puts herself through to be with this guy who's emotionally abusive uh is you know worth unpacking in in its own right but then it kind of circles back on itself to your point karen where it trying to gives you tries to give you kind of a sweet happy romantic ending uh in its coda that is kind of flummoxing because you're just sort of like, so wait, are we are we supposed to take away from this that this is really two people that are kind of broken that found a way to date, like that found a way back to each other at the end? See, that's so interesting that you say that because to me, the rom-com truly is between Ed Norton and Brad Pitt. Well, and there's that and, too, yeah. And, and so like the alternate ending... And man, it's dark, 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 dark. The alternate ending is, you know, Brad Pitt says, what's that smell? And he and and Ed Norton clasp hands and look at the mayhem they have created. And we understand they are gone, but that the chaos and the anarchy and the destruction and the hatred live on. <laughs> like. Sure. You know, and it's funny because I think that this idea of adolescent, you know, sort of romance, true romance, Moulin Rouge, that is that adolescent boy energy that gets stoked by Fight Club is literally what's being depicted in Social Network. So I think that it's definitely a it's a theme of something that he's interested in the kind of the power of that energy combined with its lack of shape, purpose, intelligence to some degree. I'm not saying adolescent boys aren't intelligent. I know they are, but it's more that um, when that energy is just given sort of no real dialogue back, 
that might yeah. ask deeper questions, particularly the emotional questions. Sure. Um, you know, culturally, I think we're doomed. They're, they're not. So. I, I was never really challenged as a child. Um, I was never really challenged about that. I did a freshman in high school presentation on seven. And I was never challenged on why do you like this movie? Uh, and I don't know what I would have said other than like kind of what Jack Black said about Evil Dead 2. It's so funny and violent and, and that kind of thing, which, you know, there's no interrogation there. And, and I think that, look, I, I, I very, very, very deeply held belief that, you know, censorship is bad. So uh, deeply, deeply, deeply held belief. But these things that the, the these things that can be misinterpreted need to be followed up by a real dissection of why you like them, what is happening inside your head and whether or not this is the kind of person or the kind of thing you want to be moving forward. Uh, yeah. I, I, you no, know, I, I, I obviously I completely agree. And I, I, I just, I, I do want to kind of um, piggyback a little bit on what you were saying, Karen, about the, the Brad Pitt, Edward Norton relationship. <clears throat> Excuse me, um, because the, the homoeroticism that exists in the film is is very much there. Um, I think you know people talk a lot about um, Chuck. It's Palinuk. Is that how we say his last name? I think it's Palinuk. I'm going to say it's Palinuk. I think it is. I actually don't know. Okay, uh, is <laughs> is gay, um, and and I think that there is sort of an element of whether or not that impacts the film in some way or another. I know that, that the film deviates from the book in, in a lot of ways. And I do sort of want to specifically talk about the ending at a certain point, because the book's ending is quite different than the movie's ending. But the, the homoerotic elements, lines like, I'm wondering if another woman is really the answer we need. I mean, I think there's th their relationship is very, uh, you know, there's there's definitely something there. There's sort of this heartbreak and jealousy that the narrator feels when Tyler's affections start to stray towards the Jared Leto character. He's grappling with a lot of sort of inner turmoil as to um, what love is, I guess, to some degree, self-love, love of other people. Um, and, and I think that that's a really fascinating part of this film that I don't necessarily know goes far enough I don't know. What, what did what did you think about that element of it, Karen? Well, it's interesting because planning for your next trip, elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. So many American movies with 
two men at its center are homoerotic, regardless of the film's ability to recognize how we grapple with affection and emotional depth between men. I mean, it, it, it's just, um, we struggle. We struggle with it so deeply. And Fight Club, to me, is such an example of that struggle. Like, when, when Brad Pitt's character says, you know, you want to look like me, you want to talk like me, you want to fuck like me, and it's sort of this idea of, in this case, the homoerotic element, to me, seems to be more about the narcissism of a certain kind of white American male, sure. the, 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 the privileged position, his privileged perch, it unfortunately affords him a crucial blind spot so that he can't even know that he is in a privileged perch. That's what is taken away from him with that privilege is perspective, is a broader vision and worse curiosity. <laughs> um, and so right. I, I kind of feel like that's that's something I take away from the film, but I don't know I don't know if that was inherent to the filmmaking as it was getting made. But you, you know, it's like I, I guess I'm I'm not sure like how much of that thread is about self-love or loving another man as it is about the narcissism of wanting to be the perfect man, which by the way, women struggle with too. I mean, you know, it's, I'm not, I'm not saying it's like a particularly sort of male problem. I just think it's this idea of the idealized self. We could say fight club is exploring, but the ideal is itself broken and completely destructive on a broader level. I, yeah, I, when you when you mentioned the the alternate ending that you yes. pitched, uh, my initial thought was that would have broken a lot of people, which you know would have been fun. Sure, and uh, <laughs> yeah. it uh, it never would have happened for that reason. Oh, absolutely. And uh, it reminded me of uh, a movie that really went, you know, all the way on this, which is Bruno. Do you remember the end of Bruno? I don't remember Bruno. I don't, I don't think I do either. Tell <laughs> yeah. me the end. Bruno, in, in the end of the end of Bruno, Bruno stages a MMA fight between him and his <laughs> producer, with whom he has gotten in a huge fight with. Like like a like a like a they hated mm-hmm. each other. Sure, and they're going to have a big MMA fight to see. You know, does the final? I'm going to kill you. And over right. the course of the fight, they just stop fighting and they just start making out. And they just oh, wait, I they, do remember this. I they just start going at it. And all of the guys there to see a fight just start losing their yeah, minds so over it. They're so <laughs> mad. They're just they're losing their shit. And I think that that speaks to why I think that it would never happen. And it also does make me think that I think that it's a completely under, if not, not at all explored idea in this film. I think textually it's not explored, and I think metatextually it's not explored because I think when you're talking when you, when when you're talking about homoeroticism, I kept thinking, no, this is about autoeroticism, which is what you're saying, Karen. It's it, this is about autoeroticism. This is a every, if you break down everything that's happening, it's him. It, it's a version of himself he loves. It's a version of himself who he aspires to be that he's obsessed with. So I, I and he almost doesn't. He, he barely fights anybody else, but. 
there is, you know, the, the fact that you have 30 some odd men shirtless in a basement uh, <laughs> rolling around and putting each other in compromising positions. And you, in my opinion, you don't have anything coming close to an, a, 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 an overt whiff of homosexuality that you're not putting on the film, I think, is a is, is a bit of a failing well, with I this th- film, uh, um, though it also yeah. might not really fit in that well. It might not be it might not be part and parcel of the story they're trying to tell of what I think is the uh, not so much the confused, you know, confused white male. It's more of the like the dangerous white male. Well, they shot a scene. Apparently, they shot a scene where they kiss um, and they cut it. Um, which I don't know. I mean, who knows? Really? Where Where did you hear that? That I that's mean, breaking in the news re- for me. in the research that I did. There was a, apparently a very short scene that 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 apparently Fincher cut from the film. Now, whether or not you know, again, the internet's the internet. Take everything with a grain of salt, right? You know, um, right. But but if it exists or doesn't exist, I do think to your point, Kenny. Um, there's there's one moment, there's a couple moments where men hug after their fights. You know what I mean? Where there's definitely this sort of a sense of, of uh, community is the wrong word, but emotional connection that these men are having. Um, and, and that does express itself physically. But to your point, Kenny, I think if it ever crossed that line, I think it would have alienated I think that you would have lost your bros is basically what it comes down to, right? Like, I think that if the the, the, the ending that you positive, Karen, which I think would have been great, mm-hmm. I do think would have just, I think that too many straight white men would have been like, I can't, I can't get on board with this movie, uh, which I think is is sad, but it's, I think that that's part of it. I, it is hard to say. I'll just say it's hard sure. to say. I understand why they didn't put it in. In 99, I, maybe 2021, I, why, I think it'd be different. Well, I, you know, the, the character I'll point to that I think was a bit of a, a revolution in the way gay men are portrayed in media was Omar and sure. Omar on the Wire. And I, mm-hmm. I never felt like there was this rampant homophobia or um, homophobic hate towards this character because yep. he comported himself <laughs> like a lunatic murderer. So... Uh, like a bro, like an avenging angel to some extent. Um, and I, I, I think that there are movies that, pardon the pun, rub up against, you know, homosexuality that are not, um, that are, that, that are not verboten to this type of, of audience. In fact, I do wonder if it would have, you know, kind of, opened up people to thinking about it in a different way. You know, the movie I think of is uh, Itu Mama Tambien, which, you know, uh, for those of you who haven't seen it, it's been 20 years, you know, Brenton. Great movie. But, uh, but ends with, you know, the two uh, sensibly straight male protagonists uh, having sex with each other. Mm-hmm. And it just seems like that's where the movie was going all movie, but it did really kind of challenge your idea of, as a guy, what you want out of sex and what you want out of compa- sure. companionship. And I, th- and that movie didn't. Well, and what love is. Well, and that made the movie. And I think that they, you know, yeah. that's what, that's what 
set that movie apart from so other so many other movies about sure. love triangles with an older woman. So sure, and I I would also say that you know to the point about. Fight Club and its homoeroticism. I think it's not fully explored homoeroticism as a theme in the movie because I don't actually think that's really its mission. I think its bigger mission, whether Fincher was aware of it or not, is terror of the feminine. What is a world where men cannot accept the feminine into their life? So we see a character who's meant to be a joke at first because he has these breasts, because he's lost his his prostate and all like all of the, the, the men support the male support group that they're somehow less of men. And it's, and, and we're making fun of the idea that they cry, that they feel anything at all about this idea of their manhood being taken away from them um, metaphorically or physically. And by the time Brad Pitt is pouring lie on Edward Norton's hand, I don't know how much you guys noticed that that scar, it's just a vagina. It's yeah. just a, a raised vagina as a brand of, of both strength and shame. And in many respects, I think that the, the movie is attempting, and again, I, don't, I, I, I wish I could ask David Fincher this because I think he's probably smart enough to, to have an answer for it. How much of the movie was about the rejection of the feminine, the rejection of femaleness in all of us, you know, like not just in characters who happen to be women. I mean, you know, the only women we see are are literally almost all dying in that one support yeah. group, you know? So it's kind of like, wow, you're really limiting the scope. Um, and, and so I, I'm curious about like how much the movie in his mind was explicitly grappling with that theme. Well, I, I want to sort of, this feels like a, a good opportunity to talk about Marla for a second, because I, I do want to kind of, I think that Helena Bonham Carter is tremendous in this film. Um, amazing, I love, amazing. I love whatever the accent is that she's doing. Is It feels alien and it's wonderful. Um, she, you know, uh, in terms of other casting, they apparently Courtney Love was was someone that they were trying to get to do it. Um, Winona Ryder, Janine Garofalo was apparently Fincher's first choice. There were a lot of very interesting casting things until it Needless ultimately to landed. Say, I, I think Courtney Love would have been incredible, but what? I mean, Courtney Love would have been amazing. Um, and and I do think that Helena Bonham Carter brings something to this movie that I that it, there as as essentially the only woman in this film. Um, she's tremendous. But what's interesting is that she enters the film almost like a femme fatale, right? Almost like she's going to sort of destroy the movie from within. Um, Her voice is the first voice we hear when his apartment explodes. I mean, she is the catalyst for so much of the narrator's problems, I guess, is the best way to sort of issues. Um, but she's funny as hell in this movie. I mean, she is she is so... The, so I, I'm curious as to sort of what, you know, as you watched her performance, what were your takeaways this time and, and how did it sort of hit you this time? Well, I agree with you that the performance is so good and so complete um, that it does feel like the production, Fincher, certainly Helena, took the character seriously enough to sort of um, grant her agency within the film. And 
I do admit that like when she says you're the worst thing that ever happened to me, you kind of feel like, well, that's the end of her story in my mind. So like, I do feel like when she returns, it's a little bit of like um, a, a kind of pulling away from the ledge, you know, that you're, you've taken the audience to. And I, I don't mean to interrogate the ending so much, but because it's an it's iconic, its punches. No it's an iconic <laughs> ending. And yeah. yet it's sort of like, the emotional end of the movie is the truth she tells on that bus. You know, you've, right, right, right. you know, you've ruined my life and how many other women's lives are you going to ruin? You know what I mean? Yeah. So I did find, but I loved her, like her wit. And in many respects, she's the kind of character that I think a, a 2021 or 2022 audience would be much kinder to, which is someone who's like, look, I'm looking for companionship. I wouldn't mind having mind-blowing sex every now and then. I, you know, like there's a sense of appetite to that character that I think is very fresh. And you're right. It's such a film noir, femme fatale mm-hmm. kind of character. Um, and I, I see Seven and Fight Club as essentially noirs, like very sure. fa- fancy noirs, um, particularly Fight Club. Um, but because I mean, noir so often deals with this idea of the double and, and fight club is just literally the story yeah, of the double for sure. Um, but I do think Marla's super, super interesting. And then is somehow given less to do in the ending by just bonding, yeah. <clears throat> bonding essentially with a corpse is how I see that ending. Yeah, but I'm not I, sure. Yeah. How did you guys see it? Did you see I, him as alive at the end I, of the movie? I, I, Yes, embarrassingly, but uh, but I, I but I want to pull back because I think that you know as soon as you said he's not, Dead, yeah. it was very clear to me that he wasn't. Right, so then then looking at this ending through you know that lens, she probably wasn't even there. Um, yeah. so that so if if you can accept that that she probably wasn't even there, her story did end when she said you're the worst person in the world, yeah. and True. the you're rest right. of it really is that. You know that true romance ending to some extent. Sure. Um, that uh, isn't so bad in that context, um, I would say. But I think what I really think is interesting about Marla <laughs> is uh, she comes into the world. You know, so film noir, femme fatales, and film noirs. Um, in light of this conversation, film noirs are, are so often about how scary women are to men uh, yes. and how a woman in a man's world is the scariest thing you could imagine. And a woman with men's tools are the scariest thing you could imagine. And, oh, my God, if they only know how to learn, use this gun, they're going to come. They're going to come back and get <laughs> us for all, you know, the, the drunken yeah. nights. We've done terrible things. So um, she comes into this film, uh, at least I think is presented as a femme fatale, but also as a pretty horrible person. She's doing exactly what he does, and she's given no context. So um, that's, you know, it, at least we understand through his narration how desperate he is to sleep, which we've all, you know, we've all experienced. We don't know anything about her. She's just there. She's just a, it, as far as we know, she's just loving seeing these miserable people. Right. That's just she. So she's a bad person at the beginning of this. And what stealing clothes and selling them at. uh, Yeah. Yeah. Like she's not a good person. And and Edward Norton's, uh, you know, judging her and the movie's judging her. And I think what's really kind of interesting is uh, throughout the course of the film, she doesn't change at all, really. 
but the movie changes around her to where she's just a normal breathing human being who is caught up in this like this 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 you know this toxic waste dump of male fragility and that is the worst thing that's ever happened to her but like i think what i'm trying to say is even the worst woman is no match for a pretty bad guy yeah i mean in, ter- in terms yeah. of in term in terms of the dis- the 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 danger and the disaster you uh, you can you can ring and i think that was the that was always the thing with the election was yeah. even like the, the idea that the worst fucking man in the universe yeah. beat hillary clinton beat a good woman the yes. worst man so I'll- i think that yeah I do. I want to. Uh, I want to just switch gears very quickly, Karen, because it's very rare that we have a director on here. So I want to talk oh. about a little bit of the production of this film, just yeah. in terms of, um, you know, how it was physically made. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it was a, a pretty insane production, as you could very well imagine. Uh, mm-hmm. He shot over fifteen hundred reels of film. Mm-hmm. Um, it lasted 138 days, over oh 300 God. scenes on 200 locations and 72 sets. I mean, it's it's a pretty shocking and staggering level. He cashed of it all in. <laughs> he, I mean, and called in all his favors. He kind of, it's, it feels in a honestly every he this film kind of broke him too because after this he goes into his panic room, which is one location. And he's just like, I don't want to yeah. do. I, I'm tired of 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 you know. Yeah. Fight Club obviously was a lot. Um, it, you know, it had a budget of uh, of sixty three million dollars, which in ninety nine is probably one hundred and twenty today, something along mm-hmm. those lines, which is obviously mm-hmm. a sizable amount of money. Which is which goes to show, I would argue, Brad Pitt, David Fincher together again after seven, we're going to give this guy a lot of money to do what he wants to do. But it's still a shocking thing when you think about it. I mean, this is a this is a incendiary script to give a hundred million dollars to make is, is pretty incredible. And I, I guess my question to you is, first of all, would you agree that this is a pretty absurd and large production, but also do you think a movie like this with this budget could get made today? Well, that's, that's the, I mean, that's the question. I don't think so. I think this movie is special and is notable because it exists at all. Sure. Um, sure. I just, I, I recently had a conversation, uh, like a Q and a with Guillermo del Toro about his new film. And which I he love, said, he said something that really stuck with me, which was what we have to understand about movies is that their resting state is to never get made at all. And, and that That's is depressing. so true. It is so true, sure. particularly sure. from my end of it, where every, all you do is hear no. A, a, a form of no is what you sort of just go to sleep with and wake up with. And so um, thinking about the miracle of this movie is humbling. Um, and thinking about the tremendous, you know, the, the tremendous privilege in, in, you know, sort of handed over to, to Fincher at that moment in his career. Um, I'm sure it's not lost on him that there was some, there, that, that he may not ever get to make a movie like Fight Club again, um, and that maybe no one will um, at that budget uh, yeah. with that schedule. You know, like I think there are versions of movies that will be as thorny, problematic, challenging, thrilling as Fight Club, but they will not cost 
the equivalent, the real world equivalent of $120 million today. I don't believe that's going to happen. But maybe I'm being, you know, it's like never say never. Weird stuff does (laughs) kind of happen in this, in this business that is like increasingly, um, fracturing and 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 what i mean the other thing i think about is like that people saw this movie in theaters so the mob mentality of the film that the film is depicting was mirrored by the audience that mostly male audience that lionized the movie as their new favorite kind of fetish object and i do wonder if this is a movie that will play differently in people's living rooms every head head crunch on concrete i wonder if we're going to be like why did we (laughs) why did we find that so entertaining because in fact is it entertaining and and that's what i think is boldest about the movie is that fincher does walk you close enough to that ledge to ask the question of the audience do you actually find this entertaining (laughs) because i and, and that's what i think is really interesting about the movie is he's sort of seeming to be trying to answer the question as he's making it. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it is. And I think this is the movie that a lot of people say is the movie that can never get made again. Like when you talk about it among yeah. other directors. Well, it's, Interesting. you know, it's, it's everything you said. I agree with, and, and I'm also am fascinated with everything, everything that you're saying. But I, I, I do think what's also interesting too, is I, I vividly remember being in high school and someone one of my friends saying that this movie before it had even come out was going to be the clockwork orange of our generation. Like that was how it was being sort of touted at, you know, as it was sort of, it was supposed to come out in July. It got pushed to August. It then got pushed to October. Clearly a, a studio that was unsure what to do with this movie, how to market this movie, how to get this movie into the theaters. Fincher pushed back on, they did advertisements during the wrestling and during various fights. And Fincher was like, you're missing the point here. Like, I just think that it, it, it's, it is a miracle that it exists for sure. I think it's also interesting, you know, the movie goes on to make a little over $100 million on a $63 million budget. So it makes back what it cost and a little bit. But what's really fascinating is how well it did on video. I mean, it made $55 million in video, DVD sales and what have you. I mean, that's pretty staggering, which also kind of feels like it's almost showing us where we are now, right? Which is that the home video, home watching things at home, Mm -hmm. there are some things that people prefer to watch at home. And mm-hmm. I do wonder whether or not a movie like this, I mean, listen, Fincher is all over Netflix now. I don't think that that's a coincidence. Yeah. Like, I think that there is something in the water here with this particular filmmaker and subject matter like this that gravitates towards home rather than a the theater experience. Well, and I'm going to say something one step further, and mm. I am saying this about a filmmaker I revere. So don't <laughs> get me wrong. If David Fincher has, happens to be listening to this, please, <laughs> sir, do not get this wrong. He's a big yeah. fan. So I, 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 am, <laughs> I, am a, I am a big fan of David Fincher's work sure. and I'm always interested in what he's doing, whether I like it or not. And I will say, though, that what you're describing, those things that we would prefer to watch at home, mm-hmm. we also call that pornography. And I, I, and I, I, I'm just, I'm yeah. just going to offer yeah. that there is something about Fight Club that I think the reason we're uncomfortable with it, and it's the combination of Brad Pitt's torso, it's the combination of Jared Leto's face getting bashed in, sure. it's the combination of the fantasy of Brad Pitt as this Herculean fucking machine. 
Nice. That's also porno. And and I'm not against yeah. that. I'm not. I don't want to sound yeah. like uh, Edwardian or anything, but <laughs> I but I do want to point out that I think there is something about this movie that is tricky because it's lighting up I want to say those worst worst impulses receptors in us and some of us we we hear it and we shut it down and some of us it opens up a window or a door to something that maybe isn't the best version of ourselves and well fincher that's has said question fincher of this is, movie fincher has specifically said that he thinks everyone is a pervert <laughs> so i don't i don't necessarily well, think that you know he's wrong but uh <laughs> but wait so when you're talking about the video stuff and then karen you continued and exactly what i was thinking which is Phil and I just went on this podcast, Screen Drafts. We did the, the best Razzie movies. The movie that this reminds me of, the, the trajectory, is Showgirls. Uh, a movie that was, you know... It, I, 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 reviled in its moment and then It's revered. not that it was reviled. I want to make this point, which I didn't make sure, on a podcast, sure. but it wasn't reviled in its moment by the public. It was not seen. Right. Right. right, right. It was right. seen by critics who reviled it. But people, to Karen's point, wouldn't go into the theater because God forbid you should see your neighbor there co- coming out of the, you know, the new Jim Carrey movie and see you going into that film and you will be ruined. So that was a movie that, that people went home and watched. And of right. course, we know the we know the reason for that. And sure, it, sure. it's trajectory from there is everyone understands what happened there. Uh, but yes, I completely, completely think it, this was a this was contraband. This was contraband. <laughs> For a for 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 a certain type of person, sure, uh, and who would watch it over and over and over again at home and mm-hmm. in you know in in rooms with like minded people mm-hmm. who weren't challenging the notions, this just probably led to a lot of drunken little fight clubs in fraternity basements. Well, um, so yeah, I, I I agree with that one hundred percent, and I and I I actually wonder, and I, I I'm curious as to obviously what both of you think about this, but is this Fincher's most playful movie like is this his most sort of comedic i i because like i was trying to think about his filmography and he doesn't have that many films unfortunately and hopefully we'll get many many more and and it's interesting too because you know uh piggyback on what you were saying earlier karen fincher has been said no many many times right i mean he's had many many movies that have been shut down tv shows shut down for being you know excessively expensive or what have you but i was watching this film and thinking this feels like Fincher having the most quote unquote fun. Like this seems to be him being his most MTV, his most sort of his most. And and Kenny and I talked about this too. Like this might be the movie, I think most of 1999, this might be the most 1999 movie, um, you know, for good or for bad. And I just sort of wonder if that playfulness is in its own way, kind of dangerous. (laughs) Well, what you're bringing up is this concept that I think we're really grappling with at this very moment, which is what happens in culture when what we start to celebrate is the death of meaning. And I, I think that's some of the tone that Fight Club predicts our culture would move toward, which is what if nothing and no one matters at all? isn't there something kind of wild and fun and let's party around this notion that 
Sure. Nothing fucking matters. And now I think we're seeing the consequences yeah. of 20 years of thinking in this way that maybe life and livelihoods and 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 joy and the planet surviving are things to fight for. There are maybe, a lot of people maybe. there there are a lot of people who don't who might yeah. disagree with us. Yes, and yes. and so I think that's kind of the fun that Fincher is having. Having it's funny. I I don't know the man. Um, I'd be so curious to know what his definition of fun is. Um, <laughs> sure. No, and I I mean that truly yeah, because yeah, yeah. I think his movies are for the most part incredibly serious. Like, um, and that's what I love about him is he remains mm-hmm. a serious filmmaker in a time that seems to be rejecting taking yourself seriously or taking the world seriously. That's what makes him continually relevant to me. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, he's definitely, he's got a lot of toys on Fight Club and he is having a shitload of fun with those toys cinematically. Um, I'd be so curious to know, like he's having fun with Tyler Durden's costumes and Marla's Marla's hair and you know like there's so many things he's having fun with but I'm wondering if it's all kind of winking toward this future that maybe he didn't even know was coming which is what happens when the self Mm -hmm. becomes the product and that's the world we're in right now like you know what I mean like yeah for sure um, and so Tyler is just you know the male Kim Kardashian to Ed Norton's regular guy, you know, sure, like in sure. some weird way. I don't know. Maybe yeah. I'm just like, no, no, no. I think it's 1115. Yeah. I'm riffing. I don't know what I'm <laughs> no, But, I, but I, I, I think there's something to the Tyler aesthetic as well about this. Like he's timeless in the way that he, he looks like an alien of like a version of what the cool guy is. Like there's all this sort of, and same with Marla with the, with her weird sort of like, prickly coat and her hair like it all feels like like she looks like a, a like a porcupine like that you don't porcupine. even want to like really that's touch. on purpose yeah no 100 yeah, yeah for she's sure, for sure. she's she's you know she's supposed to repulse you and he's supposed to bring you in he's brad Pitt, yeah. he's the best looking man who's ever lived yeah. and he's looking the best he's ever looked <laughs> and he's and he's man enough to wear a fur coat and Sure, a lady's sure. oversized bathrobe. And, yeah, you know, yeah. there were so many choices that were very, um, I'm sure they thought about a lot before oh, sure. committing to. Which, by the way, has always been this undercurrent of masculinity. This idea that, uh, great example, I think, was Joe Namath. Uh, do you know Joe Namath, Phil? Mm-hmm. Uh, Joe Namath was famous for being really fucking good looking, being pretty <laughs> good at football. Um <laughs> And being really willing to be somewhat androgynous in his time. Like he did a ad for pantyhose where he wore them. And the, the idea was, look how amazing these pantyhose make Joe Namath's legs. He used to rock a fur coat all the time. Interesting. And he, Interesting. And he was Broadway Joe and everybody fucking loved him. And you That's can awesome. carry that through, that, 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 that strand through. Uh, for years and years and years. But the thing I want to point out about 1999 was in 1999, we've seen basically every movie that's come out that year. <laughs> Nobody looked like this. No. no, this was not a cool look in 1999. This to me is the same as Amy Heckerling coming up with dialogue and 
clueless instead of guessing or you know same thing in heather's instead of guessing what the cool kids are saying and saying no 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 our characters are so fucking confident and cool that what they say will be the cool shit yeah they have their own language yes and you will be saying fuck me gently with a chainsaw or you know she's a monet (laughs) because these cool characters did uh what they that's what they did with tyler durden because that that i mean that predicted uh, that predicted skinny jeans, that predicted tank tops, tank tops on men, that predicted uh, graphic tees, that predicted everything that, that you know, men who aspired to be a certain type of thing, it even predicted self-grooming. Everything that men, a certain type of men aspired to be for the next 20 years dressed because in 1999, the idea of a cool guy dressing cool was Fred fucking Durst. And let's not <laughs> forget that. You well, know? I, I mean, it's interesting because... Um, uh, the cover that he did for Rolling Stone in 99 that Brad Pitt did, he's wearing a dress um, and straight up just, you know, he's got the shaved head. He's full Tyler Durden wearing this like yellow dress. And I, I remember looking at that image and thinking and then seeing, you know, Harry Styles today, who God bless him is going, you know, full tilt on all of that stuff. Um, I think it's great. And I agree with you, Kenny. It's, it's no one was doing that then. It's part of, I mean, for all the, the, the negatives that this movie might've created and Lord knows it has, it was also the tip of the spear on so many interesting things and such a lightning rod for so much stuff that at the time, I just don't think people were able, the movie just felt like it was just light years ahead of, of the stuff that, that was coming out. And I, I just don't think that anyone knew what to make of it. I mean, even yeah. critics, you know, it's got 72% on, on Rotten Tomatoes for what that's worth. It's got 96% from audiences. Um, I think the critics didn't really know what to make of it. It, it was, you know, it, it certainly wasn't uh, hated by critics, but it wasn't embraced by critics, which I think is interesting. Um, I also just want to talk just very briefly about the screenplay. Um, Andrew Kevin Walker did a pass on it, but, but did not get credit for it. So the detectives uh, in the movie are named Andrew, Kevin, and Walker. So he's in the credits, but that's the only way that he could get in. Um, Cameron Crowe not, not did a pass on this, which I think is really? fascinating. Apparently Fincher went to, to Cameron Crowe and asked him to do a pass on it. I could not tell you what possible uh, maybe on the Marla stuff. Oh, that, I really, I really that's that why the two guys who hugs after being the shit out of each other are named Cameron and Crow. Cameron so and Crow. Exactly. Makes sense to go, me. Yeah. Um, Brad Pitt and Edward Norton also did uncredited work apparently on the screenplay. So it really felt like a kind of booyah base of people that were kind of working on it, which I do think is fascinating. They went to Buck Henry first to do it and Buck Henry showed no interest in doing so. Um, I, I want to just hit a couple things um, I mean, the plot of the movie, we all kind of know what what happens in Fight Club, obviously. Um, But I did want to talk for a second about the sex scene that you mentioned earlier, Karen, because it's done with the same technique as The Matrix. It is done in bullet time. They had stand-ins, sex stand-ins for for Helena Bonham Carter and Brad Pitt um, for the actual nudity. But then they blended them together in this fascinatingly kind of like impressionistic bullet time sex scene. Um, it's the only sex that we see in the film, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, I guess there's that quick flash of when Edward Norton is actually having sex with Hannah uh, Bonham Carter, but it's not like a particularly sexy movie in, in, in that way. So what, what was your takeaway from the sex scene and, and sort of how sex is, is shown in the film? Well, I mean, I guess it would go back to what, you know, there's a reason 
in film what we call all of the equipment we use, toys. Um, you know, because they're just they're just a sort of added element. They're they're a piece of gear, and so the concept of bullet time using that using this highly stylized uh, approach to that particular scene, to me, is sort of speaking to this i this idea that maybe the movie was reject. It was all kind of a testosterone. lensed view of that sex, which had to also have a very um, technically bracing approach, you know, which is interesting, um, but it definitely doesn't invest you in that relationship. It just feels like amped up and kind of adrenaline rush kind of approach, which is a lot of the filmmaking in the movie, which I think is interesting. Um, Stylistically, of course, I think it's really groundbreaking some of it but um but yeah it it's interesting that it's such a um look at the cool toys we have at our disposal (laughs) well that that is definitely what i take away from the bullet time part but what i what i think (laughs) is you know just kind of uh interesting interesting textually is ed norton's character the narrator doesn't even know he's doing it (laughs) yeah he 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 is another he is he is he is having essentially an out-of-body experience when he is having sex with this woman. In fact, he's so fucking annoyed that someone is having sex with her. Uh, and I think <laughs> that, I, I, I think, I, I'm so, you know, I, I don't know how many times I have watched this movie start to finish uh, since I, you know, saw it the first time and, and, and kind of knew the twist. But watching it through that lens that, it's always the same person. Yeah. And every time Tyler's doing something, that's something that Edward Norton's, you know, kind of disassociation has decided this is a Tyler problem, not <laughs> a, you know, not a narrator problem, or this is something that Tyler would be better suited at, not me, not me. I think that that's super fascinating, the choices that were made in that respect. And I, you know, we're not talking about it, and I don't know how much is in there, but the addiction metaphor, too, is like, sure, is, sure. is, is deep and thick and scary and yeah. triggering uh, particularly the parts at the end when Tyler went and like kind of destroyed all destroyed his life in so many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something to that too, the self-sabotage of it and the, you know, the, the bridge on the river quiet, look at what I've done thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, for sure. I, you know, you bring up though, a really interesting point that is like, you know, sort of in that constant balance of assessing this movie and sort of wrestling with it. It is a really tragic portrayal of a person unable to even experience his fantasy of his best self. <laughs> so, right. so in a weird way, that's the, tra- that's the tragic component of it, right? That yeah. he, he gets no pleasure really out of life. And that's, no. that's part of the kind of, that's maybe the undercurrent of the film that's, that's, that makes it interesting and, and must speak emotionally to those countless people who watch the film and lionize it for all the wrong reasons, you know, that speaks to them probably deeply for sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I, there's something interesting too. So, you know, that obviously the, the, the very first scene where he says, I want you to hit me as hard as you can. Um, the first wide shot where he punches him in the ear, um, Fincher told 
Edward to actually punch him and like to actually do it. So he didn't. So that is a genuine reaction on both parts. It's Brad Pitt being like, you hit me in the ear. Like he's actually in pain. And Edward Norton, if you look, is actually kind of laughing. Um, and it's, first of all, like that's the most Fincher thing to do, which is to literally just torture his actors. But, but it also feels like, I always recognize that there was some sort of an interesting energy in that moment that I could never kind of pinpoint. And I think that that's what it is, which is that it feels genuine of a person punching a person and how scary that is. I give Edward Norton a lot of credit too, because that's a, that, that is the punch of a person who's never thrown a punch. You never see in a movie, which is not that easy to do. Um, You know, I, the punch of a man who got paid $2.5 million versus the seventeen point five million dollars yeah. that Brad got. I, that he was all it was all in that punch. But I, yeah. on, on on step up on the show I work on, uh, the one thing we never ask the dancers to do is to dance badly because they, like it's really hard to ask someone who knows how to do something really really well to do it like they don't know what they're doing. And I think that 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 punch is that punch is a thing of beauty. It is. I hate that, is. I hate that he actually hit him, but sure. the yeah, the yeah. the work on his part, like to hit him in the ear. Norton. Um, Karen, I, I want to ask you a question too about um, the, the CGI camera work in this mm-hmm. movie, mm-hmm. which holds up incredibly well, all things yeah. considered. Um, yeah. the, the only one that I think you ultimately could have lifted, and I don't really know why we needed it, was the garbage can. Yeah, shot I agree. We, Completely agree. It's, it's Completely the only one agree. that looks a little bit fake. and I'm yeah. not, But all the other stuff looks unbelievably Amazing. good for 20 you know, plus years ago. Yeah. Um, what are your feelings about that? Because I think that, you know, obviously Fincher, whenever he uses computer generated photography, it's to create, he's trying to create something completely realistic, right? But at the same time, there is a fakeness to it because the camera is doing things, at least at that moment, that don't seem possible. Totally. So right. So there's this push totally. and pull of like what he's trying to say with his camera work. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting, kind of, I think his attention to detail have, have become legendary and sort of part of the, 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 the pop, of popular <laughs> knowledge, yeah. so it doesn't seem out of school to, to comment on it, that, you know, like, for me, that was my issue with Panic Room, was that it just was so many shots that I just felt like, I know this isn't physically possible with a camera, so I'm sure. divorced from any reality that might be depicted <laughs> right now. Whereas Fight Club, I think, with the exception of that garbage can shot, it is attempting to use CG at its most um, effective, which mm-hmm. is to, to, to enhance, refine, amplify reality to a degree that um, we, we don't quite interrogate as unreal or CG. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so it has a more emotional quality. I mean, I think he's always kind of been at the vanguard of whatever new developments there are to the degree that from what I understand, he's willing to see almost any shot as a potential visual effects shot, Um, which is not to me a pleasant way to think about (laughs) movies for myself. I'm just too impatient and perhaps um, simplistic. I don't know. I'm not sure he must have the patience of a, of a saint in in terms of, (laughs) of the willingness to, to kind of, shoot components that over time he knows will be correct in their final form. But for me, that's a really hard way to, um, to work, but he, you know, he's a, he's, he's, he's one of those people who like lives at, 
at the cutting edge all the time, it seems, technically. Yeah, I mean, I think about the opening shot, which is a virtuoso, like the, the, the most sort of from a molecular level and then pulling out and out and out until we're uh, obviously in the, in the gun. Um, it is, I couldn't even imagine thinking of that, let alone trying to get people to execute something like that. I would be so terrified that it would look terrible <laughs> that I wouldn't even attempt something like that, which uh, to your point, I think is a testament to you know, the style of filmmaker, the courage he has as a filmmaker, the places sure. he's willing to go. Uh, I think it's pretty incredible. Yeah, um, I, I, I yeah. can't remember ever being as excited sitting in a theater as, as I was during the uh, the opening credits of this movie. And then I remember music by the Dust Brothers came on and I'm like, what's happening? <laughs> I do love that he apparently approached Radiohead first and they were like, yeah, no. But I, I mean, I appreciated that he took That's the on them. They that's missed. On, that's, that's on, on them. Yeah, they should have done it. <laughs> Um, I, I do. Johnny Greenwood was like, "I'll get you back, Tom. <laughs> I'll get you back. I'll get you." Uh, I, as as we wrap up, Karen, I just wanted to kind of talk about one line um, that Tyler says at the end of the film that I think is interesting and sort of speaks to what we were just talking about. Um, it's it's in the reveal in the hotel room um, after it's been you know made clear that Tyler doesn't exist or that he exists inside his head and Tyler says to the narrator people talk to themselves every day they see themselves as they'd like to be they don't have the courage to just run with it um and and I I think that um first of all that speaks to I think Fincher and the courage he has to do whatever he wants to do as a filmmaker and god bless him for it and we should all have careers where we get to you know let our freak flag fly but I but I do wonder sort of you know that is one of the things about this film that I do love the idea of be yourself, fuck the rules of what society thinks you should or shouldn't be. And if that is sort of the, you know, the headline of this movie, which I'm not convinced it is, but I'll just say it is for, for this argument. Uh, that is, I think a great thing. The idea of, of, of a takeaway of be bold, be yourself and just kind of run with it. I completely agree. And, and I, and I think, well, I think that this is a much more complicated, uh, morally freighted text. I would compare it to the matrix in that the two films are, are sort of meta texts for, um, this idea of embracing, locating, identifying living one's identity to its to its grandest sort of final sure. final expression and in the case of fight club i think that it's problematic because that that final identity is actually a chaos agent who also says yeah. to make an omelet you got to break a lot of eggs so yeah. i i definitely um I can't get behind Tyler as a, you know, any kind of role model, but I love the idea that, um, that the movie is asking us to ask ourselves about who we want to be, what we want to be, um, and how we want to function in society. And, you know, what we're witnessing in, in the story of fight club is the building of, a society that's willing to destroy the world. Um, You know, that's an interesting project, but I'm not sure. 
I can get behind it. You know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. But I think it's really interesting that as this sort of meta text for the future, it exists. It's a really amazing, amazing film. And, and I have to say, I said to my husband after finishing it, I just said, you know, I'm kind of humbled by how much I have to reassess this movie because my 20 years ago filmmaker self just sort of dismissed it because I probably was scared of it. I probably was awed by its technical mastery. And I was probably wrestling with some stuff that I'm still wrestling with watching it now. But I think that that's a really interesting experience to have with a film and we, we should be having more of them. I want to say one more thing because everything you said reminded me of something, which was seen seven a million times. I know every line of it. The last line of seven is, uh, Ernest Hemingway said the earth is a, the world's a fine place and worth fighting for. And I agree with the second part. Yeah. That's Morgan Freeman's last line of that movie. This film feels like if there was a last line of this film that was, you know, like that, it would be, uh, I don't agree with any of it anymore. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. you know, I, I think in the, it all in the, down. Yeah. In, I think seven was a 95. Mm-hmm. And then he made the game, which is not really a treatise on the state of the world so much. And then he <laughs> made um, Fight Club. So there's four years later, and I, I, I can't. You know, Seven definitively ends with with Morgan Freeman, the moral compass of this movie, the narrator saying, "Yeah, it's fucked up, but it's the best. It's the only thing we got. And let's go for it." And this movie really feels like it's saying, "I don't fucking know." You know, like I don't fucking know anymore. Like, like, like this is like this is where I see it. This is where I see it going. If we continue down the path, and like, I don't know. Like, it, and that is, I think that's probably why I didn't didn't really jive with it when I was you know seventeen and two ninety nine. Because that's a hard thing to leave your audience with, which is like, look how bad this place is, and like, I don't know, fucking know what to do about it. But so, then, but but even worse, it's a hard thing to leave that message with an audience successfully because, in fact, I think the success of the film doesn't leave that message with the audience that loves it. I, I in fact, I think the audience embraces something about the nihilism and the anarchy. I I, I fear that too, um, and always have. I've always I, I have always felt like that's a, like for whatever reason. When I was always, I've always assessed this film as okay. The Fight Club part, I, I think I get what's going on. The Project Mayhem part, taking that out into the streets, is is where it actually like breaks me a little bit. But yeah, it's I, I, I guess I guess I'm, I'm reading it the most charitable way, which is the throwing up of the hands. But the you know the other reading is like no no burn it down. That's a good yeah. that that that's. That's what we should be doing. But burn what down, I guess, is the question, right? Well, like, I also think that we're. it should be said, too, just for what it's worth, that the very, very last thing we see in this film is a spliced-in shot of pornography, um, which, which does feel like a little bit of a wink and a little bit of a kind of taking the piss out of what we've just seen. Now, admittedly, that nihilistic kind of, you know, uh, anti-establishmentarianism that obviously exists in this film is part of that shot, but that shot also does feel like a little bit of a joke. Um, so I, I, again, but but also it's not cut and dry. It's not. Binary. I actually, it's, you know. I I actually hate that. 
uh, <laughs> I, I think mean, if it was the, if it was the only penis we saw in the film, that would be something. It's the second penis. But when, film, but yeah. when, when Edward Norton's character explains what Tyler yeah. Durden does, he basically yeah. is showing a bunch of uh, a bunch of penises. Yes. So it's it's not this. It, it, it doesn't actually leave the audience uh, unsettled in any way. It's like, oh, they paid it off. How wonderful. So no, I, I don't think I, 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 don't, I, I, you know, I don't know. I, I just don't think I don't yeah. think it accomplishes anything, honestly. I, I well, think they, it's almost they, it's the cutest penis in, in film history. They wanted it to be um <laughs> uh we will uh yes. I, I, saw, I saw your chat. Um I, I'll just say this very quickly, uh, that they did want to put the pornography in earlier in the film. They wanted to put it in actually during the um uh, the studio credits up top, but the studios wouldn't let them do it. So they left it to the end. Um, <laughs> Makes sense. Uh, to wrap this up very quickly, Karen, uh, we do yeah. a rating system on this uh, podcast uh, where we rate the film from zero to 99, zero being the lowest, 99 being the highest. Uh, what would you rate this film? Oh my God. I- I'll say I- one thing. You don't yes. have to. Being, <laughs> being a filmmaker... Who, I was being just a filmmaker, doing it. I know, no, being a filmmaker who, who, who you know... Probably, yeah, you don't have to. Come. We were just, I feel like it's a little different no, I, sometimes, well, but, but feel but free say, to. I mean, it's the most it's it's the most interesting eighty five you're ever going to see. That's a that's a very I, I it's interesting. I I'll just say this: in ninety nine, I probably would have given it a ninety five. Watching it the other day, I'm down to like an eighty nine, and I think I'm probably now in the eighty sevens. Like I think that it's it's not a, this is a great number. I just think that. Um, it's it's throwing so much at you, and I'm not sure that it totally lands all of them. But I commend it 100 percent for everything that it's attempting to do. But uh, and it's one you, of his yeah. greatest films. I mean, it's one of his right? top three yeah. greatest films, in my opinion. Yeah, which says a lot. Yeah. Kenny, I, I, where I, were you? It, in I mean, as I kind of said, I was left a little cold in '99, so I would have given it like a honestly like a 60. Right. Um, in where are 99, you now? Uh, before this conversation, I was at a 95. <laughs> um. <laughs> After the conversation, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna go below ninety for this film, uh, but I'll, I'll, I'll give it, I'll Great. give it a ninety-one, ninety-two. I think I'm, I, I'm gonna give it a ninety-one, and I think, uh, do I think it's one of Fincher's three best? Maybe. I mean, I, you know, he's, it's not the top of mind three best for me when I think of Fincher, but um, it's, and you know, look, it's so dense, and to, to even kind of land this plane, you know, on, on. Two wheels, you know, in the Hudson, <laughs> Sully style is pretty impressive. So, well, Karen, I can't thank you enough for coming on to talk with us about this film. This was an absolute oh. thrill. And oh, great. Uh, we, we, we hope that you'll come back in the future and talk about something else with us. But truly, this was an absolute thrill. Thank you so, so much. Thank you so much. Me too. I really had a lovely time. So, thank you. And um, thanks to Ashley and Bart for, of course, making, for making the, the connection. Yes. Absolutely. I love it. I love thank it. Thank you so much. One last thing, please rate, review, and subscribe. Uh, speaking of subscribing, check out our Patreon on all the best films of 1989, Batman, When Harry Met Sally, Fabulous Baker Boys, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Ghostbusters 2, Field of Dreams, Major League, and many, many more. We are covering all the best films of 1989 with amazing guests like Joanna Robinson, Liz Hanna, Hunter Covington, Brian Cogman, David Iserson, and many, many more. All your favorite guests from our 1999 podcast are coming on to the 1989 Patreon. You can sign up for it at patreon.com backslash podcast like it's 1989. For only $5, you get access to all of these awesome episodes. And for a few bucks more, you get video of our 1999 episodes as well. Plus, there are other very cool tiers too, where you can even be a guest on our podcast. 
Please check out our Reddit as well at reddit.com backslash podcast like it's. We're also on Twitter at podcast like it's 1999. We're also on Instagram at podcast like it's 1999. Uh, thank you so much to Ernie and Will for producing our episodes, Sullivan for our social media, Jan Katas for our amazing art and theme songs. And most of all, thank you all for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.